Hello, my name is Dustin Hosseini, and this is the Digital Education Practices Podcast. Okay, uh, today I'm joined by Bella Chatterjee. Bella, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, hi, Dustin. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast today. It's such an exciting time to uh, be an innovator in uh, higher education. But for your listeners, I've been in Lancaster University for about 20 years. Um, So a relative newcomer by Lancastrian standards. We have a joke at Lancaster that people come and they stay forever. So uh, yeah, I've been here for about 20 years. Um, I'm in the School of Law. During that time, being a consistent digital innovator. So hopefully, that's what I'll be talking to you about today is the, the pleasures and pains of my career in digital innovation in learning and teaching in the field of law. Okay, it sounds interesting because we haven't had anyone from law yet, but I know that law as a field kind of, I know that in Scotland recently they were uh, trying to digitize things actually, and it's quite innovative because law is, it is one of the fields that's kind of not there yet, is it? Well, it's got a reputation as being very dusty, very behind the times, but I can assure you that law is a veritable hive of innovation, Um, you know, both in the practical field of law, courts are increasingly digitizing, Um, people would be surprised if they knew how much work was going on, but also in law and education, um, there's a lot of cool digital innovation work going on. I'm not alone, but I I do recruit. So I'm hopefully, you know, bringing people along with me for the ride. I like to find co-conspirators for reaching out into new digital innovative practices. So tell us, what are you going to talk to us about today? The pleasures and pains of being a digital innovator. So what are the, what were your motivations, I guess? Broadly speaking, my motivations are the fact that I'm a very highly competitive professional perfectionist with um, an exceedingly low boredom threshold. And because of this, anything that's new and fun, I'm immediately on it. So I love tech, I love teaching, and it's just the perfect combination to open up really a giant sweet shop and say, great, what's the latest technology that I can use in my teaching? What's new? What's fun? What can I explore? And I love to co-create stuff with my students as well. Basically, I just want my course to be better than everybody else's. And technology is the major way in which I can achieve that. Um, I can appreciate that and understand that. What did you do or, you know, what what is one of the examples of this? Well, one of the most recent things I've been exploring is using stop motion animation to try and explain basic concepts to students in a way that's accessible and fun. Um, The stop motion technique is something I picked up from uh, my kids' school, actually. They were doing a little course and my son really enjoyed it. And it seemed like a really fun way of explaining things that wasn't a document or a handbook. I think we do rely a lot on text. Um, Maybe it's just a law thing, but we do rely a lot on text to convey information. And I like different ways of conveying information. I just thought, well maybe we could use stop motion to explain things in just a different way, really. But I've also been experimenting with using audiovisual feedback for students. 
So I'll use a, a screen capture facility called Planet eStream that basically allows me to go through their coursework in real time and just have a chat with them. So capturing the chat that I would have had in my head had I been marking that piece in front of me and then having to repeat that chat because the written feedback that I gave them didn't convey enough of what I wanted to say. So using audiovisual feedback as a way to create a feedback dialogue with the students, um, that's something that I've been experimenting with. And also creating course starter kits. Um, what a course starter kit is, is basically a video orientation to the course before it starts so that students can hit the ground running. I like to have a certain sense of buzz about my courses and for me, it's a way of building community before the course actually starts. It's a way of guiding students into their learning journey with what they're going to be doing with me. And I think if I just say, oh, go and read the handbook, no one's ever going to read the handbook. So it's a way of engaging them in an early way and getting them used to what they can expect and also getting them to connect with me. Because one thing that I found, particularly with the audiovisual feedback, is that students really connect with voice. And I think that that's obviously a dimension that's completely lacking if you give them a textual source. So using a course starter kit, basically a video overview of what's going to happen, that gives a more personal dimension to their learning experience. So that when they see me in the classroom, it just feels a little bit more like it's already connected. So I'm, I'm exploring the ways in which technology can enhance and build community within the student body. Okay. Tell us a bit more about the kind of sharing and co-creation of courses with students, because I know that you've obviously done a lot of these and some of these projects may have come from... Yeah, the... Um, anything out. The, that's okay. The the sharing and co-creation bit. Um, syllabuses and course design tend to be something that happens to students rather than something that they are involved in. And what I like to do is to join them in that process and really make them my co-conspirators. In my quest to be the best teacher I can be and to have my course be the best, what I say to them is, what do you want? What can I give you? Are there any areas that you aren't maybe feeling that you're performing so well in? And I like to tailor the course around that. So maybe if students don't feel so confident in speaking in class, then maybe I can tailor in um, a no-risk audiovisual presentation for them. Or if there's a particular area of curriculum that they don't feel confident in, I can give them extra features there but it's it's something that I like to consult on and I'll say oh I'm thinking of doing this or I'm thinking of doing that what do you reckon and then they can give me their input give me their ideas and it can start to become a co-creation rather than this is going to happen and it's going to happen to you rather than involving you in that process and in that way I found that they're really quite keen to get on board um they're really pleased that someone's giving them the opportunity to have a say in their curriculum design. And it's just a way that I can, as I say, reach out to them 
build stuff with them. And I believe that you get a better course out of it. So my courses are maybe more organic than and fluid than you might normally get in a more traditional course where it's like, okay, we're going to do this this week, that next week, and then this is going to happen. So I like to think that it's more of a dialogue, really. Um, but it does get really quick feedback, and it also gets really quick recognition, um, bringing this back to the overall theme of the pleasures and pains of being a digital innovator. One of the things I love about using tech with the students and involving them in that design process is the fact that it gives such quick results. So I know pretty quickly if something's working, if they're into something, if they're not. And involving them might be in a basic process of just setting a poll, saying, you know, I'm thinking of doing this give me a tick or a cross if you like it, or asking for short text feedback in a survey, that sort of thing. But yeah, the feedback is pretty instantaneous. And also, if I can implement what they want within the duration of the course, then it really lets them feel like their feedback is being listened to, acted on, used, and the course is designed for them rather than something that's imposed on them. If I can just ask... So there's a very dialogic approach that you're taking. Um, I know that sometimes... Yeah, very much so. Uh, I guess I know that sometimes on different programs, there might be a very top-down approach, which doesn't really enable that dialogic approach. So you might have a very strong central department authority who says, we do things this way. But if you if those types of kind of programs wanted to try your approach, how would you, what would you say? What would your advice be? Uh, well, I think my advice would be tinged by being in the law department. And I'd say find out what the rules actually permit you to do, because I think people would be surprised at how much latitude they actually have. It can be really hard to fight against a particularly ingrained, let's say, institutional or departmental culture. But I came across the most fabulous quote from it's a U.S. Navy veteran, actually, something called um, Grace Murray Hopper. And she said, it's easier to ask forgiveness than to request permission. So partly, I would say, find out what the institutional rules actually permit you to do. And also, just do it and then say, oh, I'm so sorry later. But by the time you've done it, and it's turned out to be a real success, it might not be so hard to to have that um, experiment as a problem. Yeah, it can be difficult to fight against the institutional culture. But if you know what the rules are, then you're already on much firmer ground. And I think a lot of times you'd be surprised at how much latitude you really have. And especially if you've got the student support and you've got the pedagogy to underpin what you're doing, you've got the results to show that what you're doing is worthwhile and profitable, then it can really help. Yes. And I think what you say mirrors what I've come across before which is uh, anytime a lecturer has done like a creative assessment or a co-designed assessment, they've always got the students on side. But also it was within the scope of the rules. So they didn't have to do just a two and a half thousand word essay or, you know, an X thousand word essay. Um, They were actually able to do a lot more than they realized. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm pretty lucky in the law school in that I've got, you know, very good departmental support. Um, 
our law school is quite into different assessment methods, different teaching methods. But maybe if you're working in a department that's not so open to those um, approaches, then I'd say agitate, push, start being a rabble rouser. Why not? You have nothing to lose, really, and everything to gain. And if it doesn't change with you, then where is it going to change? You know, one of the pleasures of being a digital innovator yes. is being the person that's pushing at the door, being the person that's agitating for change, being the person that's finding co-conspirators and building movement, building momentum. You know, that's one of the greatest pleasures of what we do is to shake things up. So, yeah, I'm on a personal mission to shake things up. I, I invite listeners to to join me in this mission and start start changing things, start shaking things. Well, I guess what's even more important, you know, COVID-19 coronavirus aside, is that we're also preparing our students for the future, aren't we? We're not preparing our students for what we did 10 years ago. No, and that's a superb point. It's the best time, really, to start really looking at how we do things, whether we can do things differently, and absolutely bring our students into that process. We've got such a good opportunity here. I mean, it's such a shame that it's in these circumstances, but it couldn't be better in some ways to take this as an opportunity to really radically shake stuff up and do things differently. Now, we've talked a bit about, I guess, the pleasures. I don't know if you have anything more to add to that part, but there's also, you mentioned the pains of, you know, the innovation. What are some of those? <laughs> oh, my word. Um, well... It depends on how I'm casting these, because when I was prepping for this, I was thinking, yeah, there are some definite pains, but there are pains to everything. And I don't seem to notice those as much. So one of the things that I was thinking of is that innovation has a very short half-life. Um, as I said in the intro, one of the things that really motivates me is the fact that I want my course to be the best course and I want it to be better than all of the others and I want the students to like it the most. But the minute that one shares what one does and it becomes common practice, it's no longer special. So yes, you've managed to raise the bar or yes, you've managed to disseminate good practice. But then how do you make yourself stand out? How do you make your, you know, your practice, if it's already now the standard of what's good, or the standard of what's, you know, what the bar is in that field, you have to keep pushing. So it's one of the, maybe I could reframe it as a challenge rather than a pain, but how to continually innovate, how to continually keep fresh, keep pushing at the boundaries and keep achieving really in a field that does change rapidly and also where good practice can very quickly disseminate such that it becomes universal and then it's like, well, okay, what's next, what's next, what's next? And I think this is the point where my friends in um, the digital learning services come in. Um, I guess that they're called different names in different institutions, but people like yourself, people who are you know, well-versed in what the new technology is, I would recommend anyone who's starting out thinking about, am I going to become a digital innovator? Make all of the people in tech your new best friends, because then you can go to them and say, 
Have you got anything new in tech at the minute? Is there anything that you've got that seems interesting that you'd like to try out? And then you can instantly volunteer yourself as the um, ISS guinea pig. And that means you get a whole new raft of fun stuff to play with and choose from that you can then launch with your students. And what I found is that students are really happy about being at the forefront of stuff. So a lot of times I've gone back to my students. I mean, I remember back in the day when Moodle was new, um, people were really keen to work with it and learn stuff in it that was working. And I said to the students, you know, there's this new platform. Are you interested? I'd like to have you as my guinea pigs for this. They were only too happy. And it's ironic now because Moodle is not seen as maybe the cutting edge of what's innovative. But I remember back in the day when it really was. So, yes, it's true that being an innovator, you're going to be quickly looking outdated. But the best bit is the kind of flip side is that you can then go back to your friends in tech or look at the the journals that are out there, go to the virtual conferences and see, okay, what's new? What are other people doing? And run with it. So it's a, it's a double-sided coin, that one. The fact that innovation has a short half-life and it can be worked around. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of enthusiasm. But, you know, I think that's the sort of thing we give to our research and we never complain. No, I think you're exactly right. Um, a lot of attention is paid to research. Um, but I remember very distinctly, as a shout out to one of my old universities, Coventry, I remember seeing a wall of student staff produced research published. And I was like, wow, this is very nice because it mm. Mm. takes students' work and it brings it up to a certain level and then they get it published. It's the fact that an undergraduate can have something published with a staff collaboration mm. very perhaps powerful for them as a student, you know, as a future researcher, academic, employee, so on and so forth. I wanted to touch upon a point you mentioned earlier, the tech people, you said. So there's this is perhaps a problem with these kind of roles. There's so many different names and they don't even yeah. translate sometimes. So, yeah. The basic one is learning technology, but the implicit identity of that in the minds of most academics, I would say, is someone who works for an IT services department. Not all the time. Such a mistake. A lot of people do. <laughs> so much more. Yeah, they, can, they kind of mix up the two. Another term is educational technologist, and mm. I've seen, I think at Warwick, academic technologist. But then there are others as well, such as at Lancaster, we have digital education and digital learning facilitators, which is just a mouthful. But in essence, they're all kind of similar. On the one side, you have people who have a lot of teaching experience, like myself. And then like you, we were just like, oh, digital is cool. Let's try it out. Let's see what it can do. Let's try and innovate. Let's try out new, new ideas. So that's where I've come at it from. But then there are others who are like really good at producing things, making media, audio, video, whatever. Mm. They even do maybe a bit of programming. And so they come at it from more of the technical side and then they get skilled up uh, as far as the educational side. So we both come at it from different angles, which kind of causes an identity crisis sometimes. Um, <laughs> sure. So we touched upon we touched upon how 
there is a focus on the ref, which is all about research. But now, of course, as a result of COVID-19, we're seeing a sudden shift or move to digital education. What more would you say about the kind of the pains, I guess, if you have anything else on that? Yeah, I mean, Lancaster is a research intensive institution. Um, and there is, you know, understandably quite a lot of emphasis on the ref. But I think overall, ref research, I think maybe it's the difference between a solo sport and a team sport. Because when you publish something, your name's on it. It's your, you know, your ego, your ID, your credibility. It's your your research, your name. Whereas teaching, it's not named in the same way. So it can be difficult to get credit because if you want to identify something as your publication and see how well it's doing, you just look at how many sites you get. Whereas teaching is a practice, it's in the field. And yes, you can publish about your teaching. You know, there's no end of excellent journals out there that you can use to investigate and get those educational pedagogy ideas to underpin your teaching but the actual practice of what you do it's very hard to kind of tag to you in the same way as your research is tagged to you so it's hard in the same way to build up a profile of excellence unless you're going to start publishing in that field which then takes it back to research so it's a really difficult one I think to get credit for what you do um, in the same way for teaching. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the conference circuit. Um, you can do stuff like podcasts like we're doing. But, yeah, it's something that I'm still pondering on because I think the the understanding of recognition is still very much hinged to a research profile so if someone wants to know you as an excellent teacher, then how do you get known as that? It's not as easy. I think you have to do it in different ways. Yes. Yeah, so what you're saying is perhaps, uh, from what I understand, because research receives so much attention and it creates impact that is evidenced you know, through the ref, through other means of either promotion or whatnot, that gets more attention than, say, excellence in teaching practice uh across the uk but that's, it's that's easier not... to measure um i think yeah. so yeah it's easier to measure because those metrics have been introduced for that particular purpose but with teaching it's i think harder to demonstrate in certain respects your impact in what you do because if people are looking for impact and it's like well how many publications have you got or have you influenced this particular policy document? It's how to capture that. But one thing I do want to pick up on is challenging the narrative that success equals lots. I've been pondering this in my own teaching practice and thinking about how I evaluate the success or failure of certain projects. And I did used to have the attitude that if a lot of students didn't like something, then it wasn't necessarily a success. But then I started thinking, well, why should it be that I'm really focusing on numbers as the ind indicator of success? So maybe if some of my experiments only helped a few students, then why shouldn't their benefit be 
a success in and of itself. I think that teaching is a fundamentally transformative thing. And if it's just maybe one or two people that have gained from that, then that in itself isn't a failure. It's a success for them. I mean, ideally, if we can help more people, if we can make teaching and learning a transformative thing for more people, then that's great. But if an experiment maybe only reaches a few people or there's a lot of enthusiasm but not a lot of take-up, I'm really challenging myself on seeing that as a necessary failure. I'm not sure if that's making sense or not. I'm not sure whether success necessarily translates as bigger numbers. You know, if I see teaching as a personally transformative experience and if, you know, if that, if I've managed to reach that one student or transform a learning experience, on paper, that doesn't look great. It's like, well, only one person liked that or only one person found that beneficial. Does that necessarily mean it's a failure? I don't know. I don't think it does. Student learning is something that's not necessarily appreciated at the time in that I certainly reflect back on my learning experiences. I went to Leicester and I had an absolutely fantastic time, loved it. But if you ask me to evaluate that experience now, there are so many things that I realised I got from it, but just later on down the line, you know, it's not something that I instantly appreciated at the time. So learning is a reflective experience that goes on maybe over, you know, a number of years. So it's that accumulation of experience. It's that accumulation of reflection that I don't think is necessarily well served by taking a snapshot at that particular time. Did you like this? Did you like that? What could we change? I mean, I can see the value in it. And it's certainly something that I love to reflect on. Um, You know, I really want to make my courses responsive to student feedback. But at the same time, I think I also have to recognise that if I constantly change stuff, it's not necessarily going to make it any better. Because it's also one of the things that you can't please everyone. And yeah, maybe there will be stuff that you do that not everybody likes, not everybody wants. But I don't know, it'd be interesting if we evaluated learning experiences over a longer snapshot period maybe like a time lapse yeah rather than a stop motion i can take it right back to stop motion where i started yeah maybe different conceptions of how we frame that i know that one of our colleagues in the management school has done something similar what they've done is they've they've looked at their program it's a master so it only lasts one year but they could easily do it on a undergraduate program over three or four years basically they mapped out the emotional reactions responses of the students over a year so it's quite interesting because in the beginning mm. everyone's so excited oh we're all here it's wonderful and then yeah. a month or two in they're <laughs> a little bit excited but it's getting dark because of where yeah. we're located and then it's a huge hit and kind of you know when the time changes because it's dark i mean sure. but there are so many things to mitigate that Friendship groups, uh, a good social program as part of the academic studies, if that's possible, or even just regularly planned activities that kind of... Well, it's huge, isn't it? You know, there are so many variables. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I sometimes take like mid-course snapshots to say, right, how are you finding it at this particular time? Um, so it's something I do experiment with. Um, and I've done it on the programme as well at programme level, so taking snapshots at the end of first year, second year. But you're right, there are so many variables in there, um, so many variables. And it's another thing that goes back to how we can prove the impact of what we do in that it's very hard to demonstrate that what you do has been the tangible cause of any particular learning benefit. So certainly when I've gone for teaching prizes in the past, they've said, you know, how can you prove that what you do has demonstrated a tangible learning benefit? When I've gone for um, various teaching prizes in the past, where one of the criteria is, you know, can you prove what you've done has been of benefit to the students? It's so hard to prove because there are so many variables. So it's very difficult to say thing X that I did produced Y result. It's not mathematics. It doesn't work like that. Not really, I don't think. Okay. No, I would agree. I mean, it's not a uh, cut and dried. It's been good to have you today. Um, um, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure. You.